Episode 6, coming at you from the heartland of British gin. Oh, where's that, Matthew? It's obviously London. Pfft, rubbish. Birmingham. Yes, indeed. Birmingham. And um, so, yeah, Birmingham is perhaps the best kept secret in British gin. Yes. Um, because not a lot of people necessarily know, for example, that it has the best gin bar in the UK, which we'll visit in this episode. Yeah. Um, it's called Forty St Paul's. So Forty St Paul's is a tiny, tiny little bar and um, 28 seats, so room for 28 people. It's tucked away on a gorgeous little leafy old square in yeah. central Birmingham away from the traffic and all the noise um, and there we met a chap called Aman who is possibly the most knowledgeable bar manager in the country if not the whole world I know ridiculous uh, yeah. he's like he's like a filofax he is I could have said Wikipedia but I'm keeping it old school yeah I like it yeah mm-hmm. keeping it old encyclopedia yeah and yeah. um, so we spoke to Aman and we said to him we want a gin for all occasions and we ran through a list of occasions and we make in this episode Aman choose a gin for us to give us a new favourite. Exactly. Does he succeed? Find out Find later. Out. And he also lets us taste the weirdest gin that he's got. Yes. So stay tuned for that. And um, we also spoke with the Langley Distillery, which, again, not a lot of people may know this, but it's the largest distillery in the UK and it houses the largest still in Europe. What a whopper. Yeah, but it's kind of a well-kept secret because for two reasons. Firstly, because um, it produces gins for a lot of other brands. On the sly. Um, not necessarily on the sly, but um, some brands really shout about the fact they're made at Langley's. Some don't necessarily mention it. So um, you pro- you will absolutely 100% have tasted, tasted a Langley's You'll have tasted... Gin. A bit of that still. Yes, you will. Yeah. Um, and also, it's in this building, which is kind of just tucked away on this residential-looking street. So you could very easily walk past it and not know you're there. Um, yeah. So the only sad thing was that we spoke to Langley's and asked them if we could pay a visit while we're here in Yes, and we Birmingham. had... And we haven't been nope. able to do that sadly and um, they had a very small window of availability and we happened to be looking at a dinosaur yes we were looking at a dinosaur with a giant chocolate egg yeah yeah and yeah. then i went to see some of my favorite paintings in birmingham museum yes um so and we didn't we didn't there wasn't enough time to literally get over there but we got natalie on the phone we got natalie on the phone so we're going to talk to her and history time is all about the Industrial Revolution in a bit of a nod to Birmingham's heritage. Yeah. Yeah. All kinds to di- all kinds to take in. Yeah. Lovely, lovely stuff. Well, here we go. Let's dive in. History of gin in a red hot hotel room. Yeah, absolutely roasting. And um, we're here for World Gin Day, which is tomorrow. But to you, it is last Saturday. Last Saturday. June the 9th is World Gin Day. Um, I hope that you enjoyed yourself. I've yeah, been tell drinking. Us what you're drinking? Uh, well, at the moment, I am drinking Larios Twelve. 
beautiful Spanish gin that was given to me as a gift from a very good friend of mine called Paul McDonnell, who who I know fine well listens to this podcast. He's a good oh, man. Oh, hi, Paul. Yeah, and he, fetch, he fetches this in. He fetches a bottle of it before. Do you remember that one we got? I do. I remember the, um, it was a plastic bottle, was It was bottle, in a plastic bottle. Now, I've you might, seen that before. Now, you might go, oh, Matthew, I can't believe you're drinking gin out of a plastic bottle. No, yeah. it's great yeah, well, gin. Get over yourself, yeah. It's great gin. Yeah. Oh, I'll not drink anything unless it's out of glass. Well, you're the loser, not me. You know, I used to have a cat that would only drink out of a pint glass. Yeah, that is because you are a terrible owner. I took him to the vet. A terrible owner. And I said to the vet, I'm worried about him because he wasn't eating and stuff. But also, he doesn't like to drink out of his bowl. And she said, don't worry, last week I had a cat in that will only drink water out of a wine glass that's on a coffee table. Well, that cat is an idiot. Yeah, as are people who disparage gin that comes in yes. plastic bottles because Larios is very good but this isn't in a plastic bottle a blue, this is, pl- blue glass blue bottle. glass bottle this is Larios 12 and it's called Larios 12 because it's got 12 different botanicals in it yep. is that correct yep. four different types of orange fruit <laughs> orange mandarin tangerine and clementine Good Lord. And grapefruit, lime, orange blossom as well. Mm. Just all the oranges. It's delicious. It's, it's absolutely, absolutely delicious. And to top it all off, we're having it with Fentiman's Botanical Tonic Water, which oh. I'm going to make a bold statement, Matthew. This is the best tonic water I've ever had. That's the boldest I've ever had. <laughs> um, so we're roasting. Um, we're going to bring you this brief history time. Brief history. That is very much inspired by... Being in Birmingham. Being in Birmingham. So it's Britain's industrial heartland. It's got a huge history of uh, manufacturing. Um, Obviously, this area is called the Black Country Mm -hmm. um, because of the big cloud of pollution that used to hang over it. Is that generally why it's called the Black Country? That's why, yeah. So basically, this is about the Industrial Revolution, the gin's inclusion in the Industrial Revolution. Exactly. So because we're here in Birmingham, we thought, industrial theme, let's have a, a chat about... Uh, gin drinking at the time of the height of the Industrial Revolution. Tell you who probably enjoyed a gin at who? the Industrial Revolution. Who? Jethro Tull, when oh. he was inventing the seed drill. <laughs> oh, Matthew, we're it's not going back to learned, the seed drill. It's the only fact I learned about the Industrial Revolution, and I'm not just going to let it go to waste. Jethro. Was that even correct? Did you verify it? Absolutely. Did I verify it? I verified it at school when I was there in 1992. Thank you, Mr. Duncan. Mr. Duncan. Mr. Duncan. He was the history Not teacher. Duncan. 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 He was a wonderful man. Looked like Dave Allen. I liked ah, him. I liked him a lot. Loved Dave Allen. Taught me about the Vietnam War as well. Did they drink gin in the Vietnam War? Well, I'm going to say yes. Last week we talked about the fact that in the 20th century, gin became a very American phenomenon. Mm-hmm. They may have had Do some gin, gin supplies with them. Um, but don't know. <laughs> but yeah, so we are going to talk about the Industrial Revolution. So I'm going to take you back in time, Matthew. You can't. That is impossible scientifically. I think it's actually technically scientifically possible. According to Stephen Hawking, if you bend a wormhole... So, today, Matthew, I'm going to bend your wormhole and take (laughs) you back. (laughs) I'm going to take you back to the 19th century. Mm -hmm. So, we're talking the first half of the 19th century here. Mm -hmm. So, let's set the scene. Okay. We're in a f- tiny freezing home somewhere in Britain's industrial heartland, perhaps in the Midlands, perhaps in the north. Let's say in the north of England. Okay, we're in the north. A man walks through the door of his home. Hello, man. He's greeted by his wife. Hello. Who asks him how his day was. <clears throat> Why are you clearing your throat? I'm just, I'm just about to relay you... this, this, this imaginary are you, conversation. How, how are you going to relate? 
Are you going to relate with voices? Uh, yeah. Oh, God. Look, I'll, I've been working on them. Uh, I mean, you haven't. Okay, let's let's just let's just throw uh. ourselves into it and see how we go. Okay. So, why fast to my days? Fourteen-hour shift Where today. Where is he from? I, I, I don't know. I guess I, I think I'm probably edging towards Yorkshire in that accent there. Really? Yeah. Yorkshire. That is this. Is this where it happened, or is this the only accent? Well, you can there do? were many industrial towns around. You know, around You're Yorkshire. There would have been Bradford. You know, there would have been obviously Leeds. Um, okay. Wait. Okay. Carry on. Right. For, for fourteen. What hour... is the matter with his voice? What is he got a stutter? He's a bit raspy. He works in a, probably a cotton mill. Why is that giving him a stutter? That he's raspy. He's very tired. He's seen people with speech impediments are just tired. <laughs> is that what you're saying? <laughs> Maybe a good nap or sort out your stutter. <laughs> okay, there weren't speech therapists back then. He's struggling. Okay. 14 hour shift today. Now he's cured. <laughs> he's cured so that we can so that we can continue. Okay. Right. That was lucky. 14 hour shift today, love. I was given that leather strap for not working fast enough. I got my wages docked for whistling, so I won't make my full 75p wage packet this week. I'd be furious if I was his wife. Why? Stop whistling. Well, you know, he maybe didn't even realise he was doing it. So the thing is that people would, would be whistling or their concentration would go a bit and they'd actually get fined. Anyway, he continues. How, how about yours, love? Oh, you're doing the girl's voice now? Yeah. Oh, good. 14 hours. What are you putting a voice on for? You've got a female voice. 14-hour shift for me too. Two people died on the factory floor, but no fines today for me, so I'll get me full 35p this week. Note, she gets nearly, well, she gets a little more than half of what he gets. I mean, how's that for a gender pay gap? Yeah, standing with your sisters. Yeah. A child walks in. Oh. And, and, how, and how was your Is day? Is that the kid? No. <laughs> Christ. No. He's a hard pee around, isn't he? No, this isn't the son. Okay, sorry. And how was your day, son? The father asks. All right, so it's the son now. Well, I, I got a bit tired after cleaning out all the cotton machines, so they poured a bucket of water over my head. And, and my friend Tommy, he had it worse, though. He were caught daydreaming, so they hung him from the roof in a basket. Seems a bit brutal. If I was the dad, I'd be more concerned. Yeah, that happened. Why was he letting them go to work? They had to. They were absolutely impoverished. I mean, if you only made 75p a week, you'd put your son to work. So these genuinely are the conditions that people faced. So men earned little, women earned less, children less still. As a result, factory workers would prefer to employ women and children to men. Men would reach adulthood and then get sacked because they were, they were more expensive. Is this why crime happened? I'm sure it's why crime happened, yeah. And as, and as we'll why? see... So that was very big. This is why crime did <laughs> This happen. is why all crime happened. But no, and, and as we'll see as the episode goes on, you know, it's, it's why drinking happened. But yeah, you know, pe- people were fined for the smallest aggressions. Factory owners would literally turn the, the clocks back to try and get more hours out of their workers. What an absolute comic book. Yeah. Be no kind of way to get extra hours out Although of I've got a friend whose boss did that. Really? Yeah. And, yeah, those are the punishments that were issued. You know, children, they would get hung from a basket off the roof of the factory. Or they'd have weights put round their neck, they'd well, be gassed in cold water. that's making them less pr- productive? Productive. 
Yeah. Them, I'd take the opportunity and have a nap in the basket. Well, I guess the idea was that the other children who were working on the factory floor would be so terrified by the prospect of this that they would then be ten times more productive and they'd get they'd get more out of them. Okay, um, I might do that with my boy. Hang, him hang his roof. Xbox out the window <laughs> and see if he'll do chores. Yeah. But in 1833, 40% of admittances to Manchester Infirmary were the result of industrial accidents. Good Lord. Yeah. What was the other 60%? Pregnancies and fights. Probably. I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if if a significant portion of the remaining 60% were from problems resulting from these these jobs because the dust from the cotton mills seriously damaged their lungs. Vibration white finger, they wouldn't have vibration white finger, they probably have vibration white arm. The sound would render them deaf from the machines. People would obviously drink, people were malnourished, and then as you mentioned, crime and, and violence would naturally result from the misery and that was caused. Oh, yeah. yeah, I mean, orphans, bless them, had it even worse. So not only did they have to do the same long shifts in the same factories with the same conditions, but they then after... Pick, pick groups and sing songs. Yeah, and sing songs. Yeah. Oh. Kick their heels together as they oh. ran down the street. Yeah. Um, but no, after the working day was finished, they then had to just nip to the barracks, which were attached to the factories, and sleep in the barracks. So the kids who were on the on the next shift would get out of the beds, they'd get into the beds, and the, the ones who just got up would go and do a shift, the, the other ones would sleep for a bit, constant rotation of orphans working in these cotton mills and other factories. Grim. It was absolutely grim, but so where does gin come into this? I hear you ask. Oh, but but Sarah, we have gone on about the Industrial Revolution for ages, and this is a gin podcast. Where is the gin? (laughs) Well, the gin craze of the previous century was over. We hadn't stopped drinking gin, Mm. but... Um, but, you know, the, the worst of the craze had come to an end. Having said that, there were technological advancements happening, including Mr. Coffee's continuous still. still. Yes, Mr. Um, Coffee still. Uh, you... Can I have acknowledgement that I've learned something? Yes, Thank absolutely. Um, Mr. Coffee still. Yeah. Um, uh, can you acknowledge that you now know about Jethro Tull's seed drill? I acknowledge that I know about the seed drill. Yes. I still don't know what a seed drill is. Passing it on, Mr. Duncan. Right there with your brother. Um, so yeah, the, the continuous still made it easier to manufacture higher quality gin in much, much large, larger amounts. And as we've talked about in a previous episode, the cost of gin was going down again. Mm-hmm. So although the gin craze was technically over, we were it was still something of an epidemic yeah. in this country. And now that the industrialisation of Britain had spread beyond London, you know, new manufacturing hubs were springing up in Birmingham, Manchester, Glasgow, Liverpool, Bristol, you know, throughout the country. And I think it's quite nice that in this episode we're able to take the story of gin outside of London a little bit because um, oh, yeah, London was stealing all the gin stories, wasn't it? Yeah, it was, yeah. So There's a really interesting quote here, and this comes from a little bit later, so shortly after World War I, from a journalist, a South African journalist called William Belitho, and he worked for the Manchester Guardian. And he said, the shortest way out of Manchester is notoriously a bottle of Gordon's gin. Bullshit. Why? You see the M62. And then you got. I see you did. You made geography. He was being metaphorical, but I was being geographical. Yes, we're talking about the human mind. I'm not sure if I'm right with the M62, you know. 
Yeah, so, and, you know, what he meant by that was that, you know, the disaffected working classes, if this was their, this was the best means of escape from what would have been a smoggy, cold, rainy, impoverished, industrial Manchester of the 19th century. Mm. So Manchester being this centre for industry, and the, the workers were known as particularly productive, particularly hard-working, and they, they dubbed them the, the worker bees. And... B Manchester what connection. Yeah, of course. Yeah. So the, the motif for Manchester even today bee, yeah. is a bumblebee. And to tie that in nicely with gin, you'll notice that the Manchester gin bottle bears that same bee motif. And you know, that bee symbol has become synonymous with uh, community. With community in the wake of the Manchester tragic bombing. Manchester bombing that happened. So it's nice to see their their all that hard work of their industrial past still is, getting yeah, a mention. Is, is remember, right? It obviously means something different now, but at the same time, it doesn't, which is nice. Yeah, it, it means something different to a lot of people, but the fact that it does is still a nod to its ancestors. Which oh, is yeah, nice. no, definitely. And the, you know, the workers in these in these cities, um, they built Britain. These workers, the infrastructure that they built, the iron bridges that you see, and you know, mm-hmm. many of them still there, still there today. So let's let's take a trip to Glasgow and see what's happening up there. All right, I like Glasgow. Do you know, I've never been to Glasgow. Get out of town. I know, and I really want to go because everyone I talk to about it says it's an absolutely amazing city. It's one of the best cities I've ever been in. Yeah. So, and, you know, in the in the 19th century, Glasgow was heavily industrialised. And there's a really good quote here um, that references gin and industry. Gin-dustry. Gin-dustry, yeah. And I've extracted this quote from Richard Barnett's book, The Book of Gin. Um, so this was Thomas Carlyle. So he was a 19th century essayist, philosopher, mathematician. SES philosopher. SES <laughs> philosopher, yeah. Um, he was from Scotland and it's, it's quite long, but the way he writes is so beautiful and so descriptive that I, I kind of want to read it all. So I'm going to. And it's about the plight of the Glaswegian factory worker. So he cool. says, Too surely they do in verity find the time all out of joint. This world for them no home, but a dingy prison house of reckless unthrift, rebellion, rancour, indignation against themselves and against all men. It is a green and flowery world with azure everlasting sky stretched over it, the work and government of a god, or a murky simmering toffet of copperous fumes, cotton fuzz, gin riot, wrath and toil, created by a demon, governed by a demon. Sound like... Cocktails. I'll have a gin toffet, a cotton fuzz, <laughs> cotton and a gin fuzz. riot, please. <laughs> I really love the phrase cotton fuzz. Cotton fuzz. Yeah. So in here we've got this godless, hellish world. I mean, he says that the world is the work and government of a god or a murky, simmering toffet of copperous fumes. And I think around this time, Thomas Carlyle was actually losing his religious faith. And gin riot, it's a, like you say, it's a great word. And this could mean the kind of the chaos in your brain that's wrought by gin. Mm-hmm. Or it could be a reference to the idea that, you know, gin was seen as an accessory to the pockets of social uprising that, you know, were resulting from these hideous working conditions. And as we discussed on a previous show, the artists and free thinkers and rebels of the 1800s yeah. really took to gin as their kind of muse. So that could be, um, that could be what he means here. But then we started to see 
social reforms starting to happen. You know, we couldn't keep grinding down our workers like this. And even some of the mill owners themselves admitted that, you know, something even had to change. Even the evil ones had yeah. to change because yeah. they, they realised how evil they were being. Yeah, and I think they also realised that, on a purely practical note, their workers were just going to die. Like, they were just going to get ill, mm. they were going to get less productive, and then they were going to end up dead. Oh, yeah, it was nothing. Oh, so it wasn't... I think it was I think it was probably with a combination. I think yeah. some of them genuinely cared and I think some of them thought actually and in fact it's they started to look at trying to reduce gin consumption once again. Um such spoil sports. Yeah. So working conditions were improved, there were educational reforms, the voting system was reformed to make it more democratic, although I should point out that women still weren't allowed to vote in the 1830s. And as Britain's economy started to really boom, there was an increase in the number of you know, white-collar workers, is what we'd call white-collar workers now, so administrative workers, government workers, and, mm-hmm. and also entrepreneurs as well. So this new middle class kind of started to um, Middle form. class back then. It was the it was I guess yeah the the new middle class Volvo that, horse and carts yeah yeah exactly hummus gruel hummus gruel uh, smashed uh, <laughs> smashed rat meat <laughs> smashed rat on sourdough toast so we talked about gin palaces previously mm-hmm. and we talked a lot about London and how they started to spring up around London but they'd also started to. Uh, come to the northern cities and one Sheffield MP called James Silk Buckingham um, he was really worried about his constituency because the people of Sheffield were drinking gin an awful lot Mm -hmm. and who can blame them? Not me No. so he really wanted to kind of lift them out of their their gin hole that they were in I'd live in a gin hole So yeah, he wanted to get them to start contributing more to society as well. So again, not sure if it was entirely benevolent. But yeah, he rallied this select committee of MPs and they proposed a plan for civic improvement. Um, So that included opening up free public parks, um, libraries, museums and galleries. And what they thought it would do is that after, you know, a a hard week's work, it would give people something else to do. Not just go down the the gin palace and, yes, and, and get I. drunk. You know, they'd, they'd maybe want to spend time with with their family doing something that was wholesome, I guess, for want of a better word. And one of these establishment that, establishments that opened its doors to the wider public was the National Gallery. Mm. And I realise we're back in London for this part of the story. But... I really wanted to give this example because it's such a lovely example of, you know, this amusingly clumsy meeting of the economic classes in these, you know, under these reforms. So a chap called Thomas Owens, um, he was the head of the National Gallery at the time, and he was absolutely dismayed because one day this family who were, you know, they were a poorer family, they walked in and had a look around the gallery, and then they sat down in one of the communal areas and pulled out um, a picnic basket with a full picnic. Like Yogi Bear. Yeah, which included gin, neat gin, um, and some some food and snacks. So, you know, he was horrified by this and approached to the this family to tentatively ask, you know, what the fuck are you doing having a picnic in my gallery? Did he say that? He didn't say that. I think he probably just said, uh, so, excuse me, madam. Why did he, why did he talk like that? 
They all talked like that, didn't they, back then? The upper, no. The upper echelons. No, nobody talked like that. Ex- excuse me, madam. Nobody talked like right. that. That sounded a bit like Margaret Thatcher. It was a bit, a bit, of, a, bit, of, a, bit of a Victorian dandy. Well, that's probably what he was. He was the head of the National Gallery. In the, mm, just yeah. before... Oh, no, now it's uh, 1840. So it would have been just about the Victorian era, yeah. So, un- completely unfazed by his approach, the, the woman, mm-hmm. uh, the mother... She just, you know, she she pulled out a, you know, glass of gin and bottle and said, "Come and sit down and join us. Have a glass what of gin." What a lovely, lovely offer. Good on her. Yeah. Of course, he didn't take her up on it. He was probably, probably ran off. Probably ran off screaming at this. Having a little impoverished, cry. Yeah. But I love this because it's the kind of. Um, it's a misunderstanding, like that. She he would never have anything to do with it, and she was just like instantly. Hey, I love how little she cared about Come join it. me, family. Yeah. And the offer was—I mean, I bet she had. I bet that picnic probably was a treat. Yeah, it a cost real her a bit, like it cost her a little out. bit extra. You know, yeah. like just just have a nice day out. And he's turned his nose up on it. Like. Yeah, yeah. We'll kind of leave the story there, but you know, bringing it up to the present day. I mean, obviously, class ba- class boundaries now are much. Are far less defined than they were back then. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, it's, I mean, I imagine they like, still wouldn't be too happy with you in the tiet if you pulled out a, if you pulled out a quiche and just started munching away. Like. I think I might have pulled out a block of brie once. Um, I don't think it was the tape. It was some. It was something like a gallery or something. But I feel guilty for using a phone in the gallery, let alone eating a block of cheese. <laughs> You're a disgraceful person. <laughs> When you've got to have cheese, you've got no, to you have don't. cheese. No, you don't. There is no medical condition where you have to have cheese. Um, so, where were we? Class, yeah, class boundaries far less clearly defined and working conditions, needless to say, significantly improved. But hard work, you know, hard work and drinking culture still, I think, go hand in hand. The whole, you know, in British culture, I think, living for the weekend is, oh, yeah. you know, getting over that, the hangover. Yeah, yeah, if you see someone hungover, there's no, like, the it's either you help them, or you just go, I feel well being yeah, there. Well, yeah, mm. big weekend, yeah, yeah. me too. <laughs> but I think, I think, um, apart from the fact that our living conditions are a heck of a lot better, I think, you know, drinking is more aspirational now. Oh, yeah. It's not just an, it's not just an escape. It's definitely an escape, mm. but it's not just an escape. We're much more engaged with, you know, brands and, and the kind oh, of aspirational... I mean, I mean, we're doing a gin podcast, for God's sake. Can you imagine somebody in industrial Birmingham or Manchester in the 1800s? I've got a wax disc about how much I like gin. <laughs> <laughs> trying to put it on the gramophone. Get out. <laughs> yeah, so gin, gin had a job to do, to provide a bit of oblivion from, from the, the daily grind. But... Um, I think we can definitely say that uh, it's still it's still very much part of the the working resting cycle. But so tomorrow, we're going to go out into this still a very hard working city. Yes, beautiful city. Um, yeah, still a centre of commerce, and um, so yeah, we're going to go and find out how Brummies take their tipple, mm. how they relax at the weekend. So that is the history of the industrial side of gin.
Welcome to Mother's Room Podcast on World Gin Day, and we have got a very special guest. We are interviewing a man from 40 St. Paul's, the best gin bar in the country nonetheless. Hello, a man. Hi. Uh, I was surprised by the size of the place. It's, it's, it's tiny, but yes. I, mean, I, I imagine that's because there's nothing worse than when you're waiting for a decent drink to get mixed, and you're there for four and a half days, because yes. there's 800 people waiting for a mojito behind you. So that's, that's I, yeah. it's a very personal service. It is a very personal service. It's, it's the bar that I dreamt of when I was kind of coming into the bar industry. Yeah. All of the bars that I like drinking in, in London, yeah. in Manchester, they're all table service, they're all small, yeah. and they're all... Is that how you started? Was it London? No, I'm from Birmingham, born and bred, and yeah. I've been here pretty much the whole time that I've been working in bars. Uh, but you go down to London, you go see what the people are playing with. Yeah, you, yeah. You can create good drinks. Modern forward. trends and what have yeah. you. And you're stuck on gin? Gin was your favourite? It's alright. It's great to make cocktails with. Like, it's yeah. my favourite of, of my top ten favourite cocktails. Seven of, seven of them are gin based. Is that your number one? Yeah, number one's a martini. Oh, there yeah. you go. Classic. Yeah. Classic stuff. Yeah. Um, I've, I've always enjoyed gin as, a, as an idea and as a... As a it's so a, flexible, a, isn't it? Yeah. Historically as well. It's got a great story. A fascinating story, isn't it? Yeah, it really is. It really is. So, yes. the, the Langley Distillery is here. Yes. In, in, in Birmingham, one of the biggest stills in... Is it Europe? It, it is, yeah. Yeah, it's huge. And So, do you think the Brummies are good gin drinkers? Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, when uh, One of the bits of research I, I did when uh, when opening the bar, were, we found out that the, within the West Midlands, we think that the gin and tonic is our favourite cocktail, and we're by a higher percentage of anybody in the country. So, we really enjoy gin. Now, personally, yes. if you were to select... Single gin out of every gin that you've ever tried. A single gin. Uh, you're asking some very difficult questions, Matt. Yep. <laughs> well, I didn't. Co- I didn't come in here to, uh, to, to polish your ego, buddy lad. <laughs> <laughs> I came in here to find out about gin. Um, uh, horses for courses. Yeah. I okay. Can't, okay. I can't. One from each category, perhaps. If you can categorise your gins. Uh, so, for martini, my my personal martini is a beefy to twenty-four martini, four to one with Lille Blanc. I know it's, some people might say it's not a true martini, but it's mine, so... We are at a picnic. At a picnic, so picnics generally have quite sweet, rich food, um, and I'd want something that's clean and fresh to uh, counterbalance that, and also work really, it'll work really well with the, with the weather. So maybe the Blackdown Sussex Dry, which is really quite, uh, again, really clean and fresh, uses silver birch sap as one of its key botanicals so you've got uh, this really kind of uh, this rich sweetness that's still really fresh at the same time that's a picnic gin yeah. okay now uh, we're off to the beach off to the beach what, what gin are we packing getting attacked by seagulls that oh kind of yeah, yeah so you want something with a really heavy bottle yes to protect you from uh, <laughs> that is correct that seagulls. is a good answer yes. um, with maybe some reach as well so something long thin <laughs> and heavy um, I, maybe we'll take a stick for these seagulls. Yeah, um, yeah let's not waste gin. Yeah. <laughs> um, so for the beach, again, something fresh, clean, but this time with a little bit more of a citrus minerality to kind of work with the, the sea air. The salty sea air. Yeah, yeah. And also the salt of the chips. And, you know, potentially... Uh, uh, I might go with Heppel, actually. It's one of my, one of my current faves from... Use it, they use three different types of extraction for the juniper flavour, include uh, including a proprietary 
nitrous oxide extraction where they steep Macedonian juniper in liquid nitrogen and then pass that through. So the liquid nitrogen basically bursts the tears apart the juniper berries and then um, and takes up some of the flavour and then they pass that nitrogen through the gin. So it's like Book Rogers. It, yeah, genuinely, these guys are these guys are really really interesting with this uh, with uh, what they're using. They use it like blackberry leaf is one of the key botanicals. Blackberry, never seen that. It's one of the, yeah, it's a very it's interesting, obviously, interesting. All right, so that, that, so the uh, Heppel gin, that would be a yeah. beach gin. Um, winter gin. So uh, it's not necessarily a gin, well, actually, it is a gin, but it's served in a specific way that we do here. So for our winter gin and tonic, uses bathtub gin, and we blend that with a homemade salted caramel. Uh, syrup oh, and the, the, a drinking chocolate from a chocolatier around the corner that won best drinking chocolate in the country <laughs> it's it's pretty spectacular I think that would be what I would want to drink if you were to go into space and you could only take one gin with you what would that be? because um, we've always mentioned the salty air the, the nice the cold air now there's nowhere now there's nowhere no right, air at all <laughs> what gin uh, you want for? You're, you're eating powdered ice cream you've got to have a nice gin yeah of course uh, <laughs> So Martin Miller's Westbourne Strength, because Martin, I've tried Martin Miller's for the first time. It's one of the cleanest gins yeah, I have. So ever great! Had. It's so great. The the Westbourne Strength is slightly stronger. It uses a little bit more juniper, so you get that clean, fresh juniper flavour profile. Because their gins are fresh. They're not like stewed. They don't have that kind of musty juniper that you get with certain gins. But they claim to have. Their, their water is one of the cleanest water sources in the world. Icelandic, isn't it? Icelandic water. They uh, And they claim to have... Uh, it's super oxygenated, so they have three times as much oxygen in the water than most waters. So, obviously, being in space and there not being any oxygen, if I could drink that's oxygen... Say that. So yeah. you thought about it. That's a good point. <laughs> and... Isn't that made at, uh, that's made at Langley's as well? It is made at Langley's. Made at Langley's? Yeah. Now, the last two questions we want to ask you yes. is about this. Because this place, it serves a lot of, I mean, how many gins do you have? 140. 140 gins. Now, what's the most unusual gin that you've got? Most unusual? Um, the one that people kind of really shout about is the anti-gin. Uh, so we've got, I've got a bottle here in front of me. It's a gin that's made by Nordic Food Labs, which is a scientific arm of Noma, best restaurant in the world between 2009 2013 really? in Copenhagen. So, Renovin the head chef there, his new Nordic, um, what's it called? The New Nordic Manifesto, uh, which is a way of looking at cooking that's more sustainable and from the land, they would... They wouldn't buy any produce in. If they couldn't grow it or kill it themselves, they wouldn't use it or forage for yeah. it. So, uh, in uh, one of the courses at Noma, they had these red woodland ants, Formica rufus, as the garnish. Now, Formica rufus is quite special in that it's, it has formic acid as part of its defense mechanism. Um, so, they, um, so, what happens is with, with these ants, Formic acid is there, which is, to human beings, it's quite bright and tart. Tastes like a thousand lemons have been condensed into right. one tiny little point and then burst in your mouth. Um, almost sounds delicious. <laughs> it, it is. It is. There's a restaurant in uh, Birmingham that uses them. What happens is when they get stressed, 
the abdomen starts to dissolve and it taints the formic acid. So they, so they, you lose that freshness and it becomes really quite acrid and just horrible. So what the guys at Noma were doing, were their foragers would go out to this forest just outside Copenhagen. They'd line a box with soil and plants from the ants' natural environment, uh, forage these ants, get them into the box, get them back to the restaurant, and then literally as they were going on the plate, they would get stunned. So they were so you didn't lose the freshness of flavor. Obviously, this is a little bit arduous, and uh, they, you know, it, it's quite interesting that the restaurant has its own scientific lab that helps with kind of flavor profiling. So they gave some ants to Nordic Food Labs and asked them to see if they could preserve the flavor. Uh, they couldn't, so they sent out a tweet which a gentleman named Will from Cambridge Distillers, which is the gun dog that you'll find on the back of the bottle, mm-hmm. um, saw this tweet and he'd already distilled insects for somebody else. So they, he basically said, look, I've already done this, uh, I didn't see it. How, do you, how do you feel about distilling them? And so they said, yeah, let's bring them over. These ants these are really quite delicate, so they only last for 18 hours. After the, even after they've been foraged, even after they're put in these boxes, because their bodies recognise that they're not in their natural yeah. environment. So you, you could imagine the logistical horrors of foraging for some ants, getting them to Copenhagen, getting on a flight from Copenhagen to London, and then from London, and then through customs as well with these ants, uh, from London to Cambridge, and then Cambridge to the distillery was. Uh, it's insanity. Yeah, yeah, it really is. Um, but yeah, so they, they created an ant vodka at first, and that was okay. Um, but then they, uh, with the world of gin becoming so popular, this was originally released in 2010 for a, sh- a really famous chef forum. And with the almost the botanicals that were being sent over with the ants, they decided to create a gin. So all of these botanicals are found in or near the, uh, the same... Uh, the ants' environment. Yeah. That's incredible. So, so yeah, and the ants actually come as a separate stopper, so when you taste the gin... Oh, I think we've seen, like, you get the, the eyedropper. Yeah. yeah. That's so, so in the bottle you have the forest and then you have the ants separate. Would you like to try... I will. Yes. <laughs> That's actually all right. That is really. Nice. I know what you mean about bitter, the bitterness. Yeah. Whoa, it's like it's, it's like me cheeks and then he went inside out. Oh, I imagine. I imagine that costs a fortune. So the bottles are expensive. Yeah. Uh, we sell it at a relative loss. Um, so we're not making we're not making the kind of money that we do on most of our drinks, yeah. but it's thirty pounds a double good time. Yeah, yeah. Well, you I, get the story. Well, yeah, yeah. But I imagine it gets I imagine it gets people in as well. Like, uh, yeah, there is that. It's, it's something to try, you know. Like uh, it's like I mean, I imagine the yard of ale at one time was like, oh, come and try this. Yeah, the yard of ale. Was like, well, the, we, well, that was. Tell you what, the, the flavour's still there. Something, it's on the yeah. it's, That's not going anywhere for the day. Like, it's it's quite punchy. So yeah. we worked it out. There's. Um, there's so few bottles in the world that if every bottle had been sold by a bar and every they'd been sold as singles, so single measures uh, with tonic, less than 1,500 people in the world would have tried it. That's how few bottles there are. Well, that's wonderful. Well, thank you very much. I can't recommend Forty St. Paul's high enough. Do pop along. And uh, thanks very much, Matt.
Chin News headlines today. This'll do nicely. Aberdeen Festival launched as Scottish gin industry booms. Aussie gin liftoff requires fat bastard. Gin are out. Brexit could lead to gin shortage. This'll do nicely. Aberdeen's festival launched as Scottish gin industry booms. The weekend of the 14th of September will see 25 gin companies come together to celebrate the Scottish gin boom. The G2 Gin Festival will showcase a range of gins and exciting recipes. Visitors can also attend masterclasses throughout the two-day event. The announcement is unsurprising given the surge in the popularity of Scottish gin. There have been a few new Scottish gins coming out recently, haven't there? There certainly has. Um, There's been um, Oro, which we talked about a couple of weeks ago, and um, one that I'm really excited about, which we've already mentioned on a previous show, which is Raven Gin. Raven Gin, yes, we're in touch with them. Yes. Can't wait to get in touch with them. And they've got a couple of uh, of their mates on board. We're going to have a very special Scottish... uh, Yeah. Scottish theme. We're going to do a Scottish episode because um, there's so much going on in Scotland at the moment, gin-wise. I mean, it's so exciting. So good. Um, In fact, I think I read a thing um, this week that said Scottish gin... Accounts for something like seventy percent. It is seventy percent of the all of the UK's supply. Yeah. Now then, Aussie gin liftoff requires fat bastard. What's this all what about? What does this mean, Matthew? There's an Aussie gin producer is so taken with Scottish gins that he's had his he's named his still in honour of his favourite Scottish character, fat bastard. Wow, Scottish character. You might as well have called it Shrek. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's just a a Canadian man. Putting on a really bad Scottish accent. Yeah. The craft distiller Paul Messenger, a former geologist, was inspired to start his own distillery after learning about the Scottish small farm distilleries. He was so enamoured by the Scottish production methods that he set up a distillery in a shed in New South Wales. But uh, it sounds impressive what's going on in Australia. Australia's taken off as well. It's that ink gin as well. That's from Australia. I've seen that bright purple. Yeah. I'd very much like to taste that. Yeah. So what's this brand called that, that he's got? It's Four Pillars Gin. Oh, Four Pillars. I've, he- I've heard of this. They've got, um, they've got all sorts of interesting... Well, uh, that's the thing, isn't it? That's, what, that's why I'm fascinated by gin. Like, it, it all depends on the botanicals that are available yeah. to you. Yeah. So, obviously, a Scottish gin and a, an Australian gin and a Canadian gin are going to be entirely different because yeah. the, just because of the availability of botanicals. Yeah. So, Fat Bastard, apparently, is uh, the, the still that they've got. So, that's the still. He's named it Fat Bastard. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm not just I'm not just being horrible about the man. No, it's not even his foot bastards. Australia's first Wharton Forsyth still, which was built in Scotland, and is hailed as the Bentley of stills. Wow. Six thousand liter device. Wow. That's what it is. Six thousand liters. Good lord. Mm. Uh, the quote from the fella uh, said, uh, "Gin is able to show a sense of place through unique and often indigenous botanicals," as we were saying. I like that. So he's uh, he's he's set up this distillery in in a tribute to uh, Scottish gin distilling, but he's given it a really authentic uh, Australian uh, flavour. Yeah. Um, with all the, the native botanicals, and I'm sure meant in all good humour, has named it after the non-Scottish Scottish character. Yeah. Last story, gin or out? Brexit could lead to gin shortage. Oh my god. No. The Wine and Spirits Trade Association has warned that a no-deal Brexit could lead to juniper shortage in the UK. I mean, I've I've been assured that the value of my house is going to plummet any time soon. I'm handling that. Gin shortage? No. That's how you're handling that? that. Yeah, that's That's how I'm handling it. That's the problem. 
they were about to take your gin away yeah. as well. I mean, your house price and your take gin. my home, take my freedom, don't take my gin. <laughs> well, so why? Why is this going to happen? Well, Brexit could lead to a juniper shortage in the UK. While juniper does grow in the UK, mm. there's not nearly enough to keep up demand. To make matters worse, British juniper is susceptible to a native pathogen. I'll tell you which one, but I really can't pronounce it, so I'm not no, going to bother. We'll but leave it. just rest assured, it's a terrible one. So we can't grow enough. No, we're just drifting away from the rest of the world without gin. No. I'll swim. I'll swim to France. I'll swim, yeah. I'll swim to goddamn France. We'll do that. So. So bleak gin news today. Bleak gin news. Bleak gin news. Well, it's interview time, and uh, we're here with Nat. I say here with. We're on the phone with Natalie Wallace from Langley Distilleries. Hello, Natalie. Hello. How are you both? We are very well. We are sitting in a hot car doing an interview because uh, we know how to live. <laughs> so, uh, you work for Langley Distilleries, which we understand is one of the biggest in Europe, if not the biggest. It is, yes. So I am sixth generation family member to um, work within our, our family company, which was founded in 1805. The distillery is based in Birmingham, where we contract distill um, for the global gin market, producing around uh, about 70 million bottle equivalent um, for, as I say, the global gin market. A variety of different customers from super premium gin brands, supermarkets, right down to, um, you know, your average consumer off the street that's found that there's, you know, a gin craze going on locally and they want to be part of yeah. the gin boom. That's that's impressive. Uh, you, you you do small batch as well as absolutely gigantic. Seventy million seems like a lot of bottles for any. How big is this place? Um, well, the distillery itself has quite a small footprint. Um, being two hundred years old, it has a lot of uh, creaky floorboards. It was an old brewery, so there's a, a well that um, crosses underneath the distillery site. So we draw our water from that well to use in production. But our stills, we have a family of seven up at the distillery or copper pot ranging from 300 litres which will give off around about 10,000 bottles to Jenny who's our biggest still and when we run her she's 12,000 litres which will give off around 250,000 bottles in 250,000 bottles wow and so you say that it, it used to be a brewery um, so yes. when did it change from being a brewery to a distillery there are um, a couple of dates so you know the records that we have on we don't know how accurate they are but the distillery certainly started producing gins in the late 1800s early 1900s it was mothballed during the world wars and then we started production again back in the late 70s so i guess who, who would have been the market in those early days would it have been the the workers in 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 birmingham and in the midlands or yeah, absolutely. The distillery is really well connected. Although it's outside of um, Birmingham itself, it is on the railway lines and also by um, a local canal. So in terms of the local population, um, it was surrounded by fields as well. So it would have been kind of the workers that would really be drinking the gins that were made in the early days of the distillery. Yeah, all, the industrial, uh, all the industrial workers just getting absolutely smashed yeah. on their... Uh, on... <laughs> On your gin. Are you happy with yourself for that, eh? All the fights you caused? 
Well, yeah, there my predecessors left a little bit of a legacy there. Yeah, for it's us like, to, uh, it sounds it's like it's fascinating, but the well that uh, runs down where you are, the, there's a well in, and you draw yeah. all the water from there. Some of the um, water, not all of the water, because of the demand that the distillery sees. Yeah, I obviously. And we do have to support that with other water sources. But where possible, where we heat the fields, we, we draw the water from that well because, it, you know, it's a good source of water. And actually, it's a really nice story that, you know, despite our size, um, a lot of people, you know, think that... Um, you know, there might not be craft in distilling, you know, in the capacities that we have. But we would say that that completely a different story when you come and see the distillery with its, you know, creaky floorboards and, and the, you know, yeah. the processes that we offer and how we try and keep to the traditional ways of distilling. Yeah, we were very upset. We, man- we we missed you when we were in there. We were in Birmingham. We really wanted to come <laughs> through. But uh, next time we're up in the Midlands, we'll definitely give you a ring and come in and visit definitely. ourselves. That would be brilliant. By all so, means. So how yes, many- that would be great. How many types of gin do you do you produce? We have over we have a variety of um, ways that customers can purchase gin from us. They can either buy what we would call a stock recipe, so recipes that have been developed over time. We're constantly developing new ones in our laboratory. So in that bracket, we have about three hundred recipes. Yeah. So where people could come and say, I want a flavour profile of a citrus gin, or I like X, Y, and Z brand. Can you make me something similar or match me something similar? We can do that. And we also have the bespoke laboratory as well, where we can create um, a unique gin, you know, maybe incorporating some local botanicals to a particular area or just creating something that's truly unique to, to a customer, depending on what their requirements are. That sounds amazing. I want to go in the gin laboratory. I picture loads of men <laughs> with spiky white hair and uh, the odd explosion every now and again. Hopefully no explosions, but there's a lot of experimenting that goes on there in some, um, yeah, some interesting botanicals and certainly with the um, popularity of flavoured gins that yeah, we're yeah. at the moment. There are unique flavours that we're being um, creating, you know, being asked to create. That's fantastic. So it's interesting that in the Midlands there, you've got, obviously in Birmingham, you've got what's claimed to be the best gin bar in the UK, Forty St Paul's, and you've also got the UK's biggest distillery. But it's funny because Birmingham and and the Midlands generally doesn't have a hugely gin-related reputation, does it? No, no, it's all been mainly focused down in London. Um, Obviously, the guys at Sitsmith are quite instrumental bringing gin production back in to, you know, the forefront of everyone's mind back when they first started, when they have got the likes of the Feeder and um, still in London as well. But not many people know about us. We are often described as the best kept secret in kind of gym production because if you, when you come to the distillery, you'll be able to see that you wouldn't know that there was this, you know, gym production producing the volumes that we do um, in a quiet little street in Birmingham. Away, yeah. Tucked away, yes. Yeah, because I imagine this huge cavernous building where yeah. it all happens, but um, but no, it's just a little unassuming building that would wouldn't look any different it from is the rest. Very much, yeah. yeah so, you know, in James very Bond, where he opens a door and everyone's training, there's thousands of people training, and then you close, it looks like an unassuming door, and there's just like this massive like glare. Not quite what everyone <laughs> um, imagines it to be. So we we have a few pleasantly surprised faces when people come in and you know you walk into the distillery and straight away you can smell all of the botanicals we have our you know all of them stored within the kind of front section of the distillery so as soon as you walk through those doors that smell hits you yeah. and it really does remind you that you're at the home of gin fantastic um it's well known that you make a couple of high profile brands whitley neal i believe yes. is one of them is that right 
yes, we are um, in partnership with the owners of the Whitney Newell brand to uh, create their gin for them. Which is a fantastic gin. We're, uh, we, we're, we're massive, massive fans. fans of that gin. Yes, love it. You make you make some of the biggest brands, but uh, what is the rarest gin you've ever made? On one of our oldest stills, named Mackay, it dates back to the early 1800s. We refurbed the still last year. It's always been at the distillery, but we've never quite used it in commercial production. So we ran a special recipe that our master distiller created. We gave him free reign as they create whatever you want. And he came up with a wonderful recipe that we've called our Distillers Cup, which has got 15 botanicals in there. So it's yeah. a really complex gin at 47%. Yeah, yeah. It's got lilies, iris, grains of paradise in there um, with a hint of fennel. So it's a really unusual gin and that we created in a small batch to, to celebrate the distillery and, and you know, two, over 200 years of production. And do you have your own brand of gin as well, don't you? Yes, we do. So we have Palmer's Gin, um, which is our family name. And so that's where the Palmers come from. Yes. Um, so my great-great-great-grandfather was William Henry Palmer. Wow. Um, and so we've always had that brand within the family. For oh, incredible lineage. shareholder meetings. Such a yes, b- lovely yes. thing. So then we relaunched that last year to the public, or launched it to the public last year, should I say, um, in new packaging so everyone could kind of enjoy what we've been kind of drinking for a fair few years um, and certainly you know a drink that my grandmother used to drink when she was with us huh? so it was a, a nice nod to the distillery and to her as well oh that's, so, that's, that's um, charming it's yeah, been wonderful to, to launch that brand as well that's wonderful well i mean we're big, obviously big fans of uh of what you do it's absolutely fascinating and uh we'll certainly come and uh, and visit you at some point yes absolutely it sounds it sounds like a beautiful Perfect, building yeah. and obviously it. it's full yeah. of our favorite stuff yeah. so uh, we'll be there <laughs> well thank you very much Natalie. i really appreciate this we'll be in touch again soon and we'll meet in the flesh yes absolutely definitely all right, all right well thank you very much thank you That's it, Birmingham done and drunk. Yeah, tried and tested. Yeah, all the bestest gins. Approval given, yeah. Oh, absolutely. Go to Forty St Paul's if you can. Please go to Forty St Paul's. Beautiful place. I mean, book ahead. It's tiny. But yeah, but go the, along. Yeah, the atmosphere, um, the staff are awesome. The staff are cool as out. Yeah, give the anti-gin a try. I mean, it's very expensive, but... Yeah. There you go. Apparently, if all, like you said... 1,500 people could possibly have tasted that if it was all done in single measures. So that is a rare gin. A real rarity, yeah. yeah. And uh, just so you know, ants taste foul. Do they? Yes. I didn't taste because obviously I'm vegetarian. It was like a gazillion lemons at once. Wow. It's like, it was like a lemon weed on me tongue. Wow. I'm kind of intrigued, but I, I managed to Unpleasant. resist. Yeah. Um, so thanks again to uh, Aman um, for having us at Forty Simples. Thanks to Natalie um, from the Langley Distillery for chatting to us. Definitely going to visit there. Definitely going to go and visit there. That sounds uh, fascinating. Yeah. No, absolutely. And um, also one shout out this week to Mr. Jason Manford. Yes. Uh, the po- popular communion. Yes. And a lovely, all-round lovely guy. Yeah, who gives a bit of support. Important, a bit of a tweet. A bit this of a tweet. Week. That's nice. Thank you for that. Well, we'll we'll crack on with next week's episode. It's going to be great next week. I'm not I'm not going to tell you what it's going to be about, but I'm excited about next week. I'm oh. quite intrigued. I don't know yet. Mm. What's it about? Actually, wait. <laughs> Goodbye.
Mother's Room podcast was written and performed by Matthew Reed and Sarah Dunley. Theme tune written and performed by Holly Jazz Cotzier. Mm-hmm.